0: Jonah chapter 4, verse 5, it says, So Jonah went out of the city, out of Nineveh, and he sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth, and he sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And The Bible says that God prepared a gourd and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. And Jonah was a exceeding glad for this gourd. But God then, verse 7, prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd, this leafy plant that was bringing shade, and, and, and the gourd withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah. And he fainted, and he wished in himself to die. And he said, it is better for me, God, to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry about the gourd that I've caused to wither? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. I'm going to take this to my grave, God. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd for the which you didn't labor. You didn't put any effort into this. You didn't make it grow. It came up one night and it perished the next. And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons, 120,000, that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. Amen. I want to invite you to just pray with me today. And I do feel like the, the Lord wants to speak to us. Let's open our hearts for that. Can we do that together? Let's lift our voices. Let's begin to pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you once again for the honor, the privilege of being in your presence. God, I pray that you would get all flesh out of the way. Jesus, get me out of the way, my mindset, and God, my ideas. I pray that your word would go forth, and and I pray that in clarity and Jesus, God, in power, that it would change and transform every mind, every life, every heart. God, we are open to what you want to speak, and God, more than that, what you want to do through your word in us today Challenge and change, God encourage and empower. We ask it in Your precious name, in Your powerful name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Everybody say Amen, Amen. amen. God bless. You can be seated this morning. Now, this is strange to uh, to do to be preaching the same message back to back. Uh, this is a first, and uh, I got to tell you that the nine o'clock they they uh, they didn't understand. Or maybe they weren't awake for my opening illustration. So we're going to try better, okay? And if you're watching and you're from the 9 o'clock, we're going to totally uh, demolish your uh, laughter in the next few moments. There we go. That's great. See? I knew it. I knew it. So um, I'm wondering, have you ever heard of a first-world problem before? I think what I just highlighted, that's a first-world problem, being being upset that I didn't get enough laughs for my opening illustration. Somebody say a first-world problem. Now, if you were to define it, the, uh, the internet, uh, Webster or something, by definition, uh, a first world problem is a relatively trivial or minor problem or, or frustration. And, and by its very nature, it implies a contrast with serious problems, such as those that may be experienced in the developing third world. And, and uh, you know, Earth is the third planet from the sun, so technically all problems are third world problems, but nonetheless, first world problems. And and for your reference, uh, modern society and youth culture in particular, we have taken some first world problems and we have memified them for your viewing pleasure to help you understand what a first world problem really is. So if you can help me at the back, um, such as, oh, no, the tags re- ripped off my Beanie Babies. Now they will be worthless in 10 years. <laughs> it is better, I promise. It's much better. Um, this one really needs no caption. It is... By itself, a message to be received. First world problems. That My cookie is too big for my glass. Uh, For you computer junkies, I accidentally clicked on Internet Explorer, and now I have to wait for it to load so I can close it again. You know, like the, yeah, anyway. This is more fall, uh, you know, related, but but maybe it ministers to somebody here. I said extra foam on my pumpkin spice latte. We'll, We'll move on. I accidentally poured the milk before my cereal. Conundrum of all conundrums. Does anybody just do that intentionally? We're going to ask you to leave right now if you do. (laughs) There There must be a purpose. Some people do it, I'm sure. I can't hear the TV when I'm eating potato chips. Now this is a problem, right? Not sure if you should laugh at that one. I understand. Okay, next. My laptop is dying, but the charger is in another room. I either have to stop working or get up. It's a problem. I forgot I was watching a recording and I sat through the commercials. <laughs> PVR for the win. Okay. Is that the last one? I can't remember. All right. There we go. <laughs> First world problems. You know, it, it's funny because every, every joke and every meme and every JK, it's funny because there's always that shred of truth in it. That's the only reason that things are funny. And, and North Americans here in our developed first world society, we do seem to have a low tolerance threshold for life sometimes. And sometimes the most insignificant things get us frustrated. Meanwhile, there, there are bigger issues out there beyond whether or not you, you have to get up to go get your charger or your cookie's too big for your milk glass or, or so on and so forth. There are big issues out there in the world, right? Right? And, and this kind of lends itself to what I want to address uh, you with this morning from Jonah chapter 4 and the life of this man of God, because something uh, similar, at least in my mind, takes place in his life. And if I could give you a brief synopsis of his, of his story throughout the book of Jonah, essentially Jonah chapter one, it ends with Jonah being swallowed by the great fish, right? He runs from God's calling to go and preach to the Ninevites. He runs the opposite direction and God swallows him up in mercy with this fish. And and that's how Jonah one ends. Jonah chapter two ends with Jonah being spit onto a beach by this fish and uh, he's been in the belly of it for three days. He prays, he repents, and God gives him a second chance. The word of the Lord came a second time, and Jonah is going to do God's will and preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah chapter 3 ends with the Ninevites heeding the word from the prophet and repenting of their evil, and God deciding not to send destruction upon the Ninevites. And if the book of Jonah would have ended right there at the end of chapter 3, that to me would seem appropriate. The story has wrapped up nicely, and Jonah seems to be the mo- like the most amazing prophet and preacher that has ever lived because he preaches one message and has a 120,000 soul revival, 120,000 people repent, and the whole city after the order of the king is in sackcloth and ashes seeking God's hand of mercy. Seems like a pretty legitimate preacher to me. But the story of Jonah does not end there. Now, Jonah was the author of the book of Jonah. And, and, and if I were writing my own autobiography like he was, I would have stopped it there and I would not have continued. But but that's not where the story ends. And to me, this is proof of the authorship, the divine authorship of the Bible, and that it's not just authored by mere man. Because again, if Jonah were in charge of authoring this story all by himself, I'm sure he wouldn't have included chapter 4. It makes him look kind of like a sissy. (laughs) It does. This is proof that the writers of Scripture were inspired by God because because if Jonah had the final say of what to write, he's stopping right there. But it goes on, and you flip the page to Jonah chapter 4, and verse 1 is very telling about the prophet. Because despite a great revival, despite 120,000 plus people repenting, the Bible says that all of this, this development displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And, and we're over here, you know, reading this story, scratching our heads, saying, uh, Pardon? What? <laughs> Jonah, you just had 120,000 people repent after one message, and, and you're angry. What's the matter with you, Jonah? I mean, we get excited about people like Peter who preach one sermon and about 3,000 are added to the church. We get excited about Noah who preached for 120 years and not one person converted. Here we have Jonah, 120,000 people after one sermon, and, and the guy that preached the message is, is, is angry about it. And so, verse two, it carries on, helps us to gain some perspective. He prayed unto the Lord and he said, I pray thee, O Lord, was this not my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God. I knew you were merciful. I know you're slow to anger. You're of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. In other words, Jonah is saying, uh, God, I know you're merciful. And I know that that I knew that if these people would have repented of their sins, that you wouldn't send the judgment. I, I knew this from the outset, God. And that's why he was upset. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me. Take my life, God, for it is better for me to die than to live. And so evidently, Jonah, he seems to have an issue with the Ninevites. You know, perhaps there's a little prejudice there or something, or, or, or perhaps he feels that all of his other prophet buddies, all of his contemporaries in the kingdom will make fun of him because of his prophecy You know, it's not going to come true the way he said it. Either way, Jonah is throwing a tantrum, asking for God to take his life, all because God has decided to act in mercy and not wipe out the Ninevites. I just want to remind us today that it is not up to us. It is not up to mere flesh to decide who God saves or who God decides to reach to, that is not our call. God is just, God is sovereign, and he is in charge of choices such as these. It's why Paul said in Romans chapter 9, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? In other words, is God unjust when he decides to be merciful to a sinner? God forbid, for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have mercy compassion. And God is reaching to a pagan, evil, idolatrous Ninevite nation because they have turned to him in repentance and fire and brimstone and judgment will not be coming their way. He has spared them. See, even though Jonah, uh, even though chapter three had a happy ending, it's not the ending that Jonah wanted to see. And it seems that Jonah had, had some problems going on in his mind, kind of messed up really, because he actually wanted to see the fire and brimstone rain down from heaven that he had prophesied. What's interesting to me is that, you know, we thought the book of Jonah was all about God reaching for the Ninevites. And that is certainly a part of the story, but it's only act one. Because you see the overarching narrative of the whole book of Jonah is really about God reaching for Jonah, not for Nineveh. For the prophet. I'm grateful today that God still cares enough every once in a while to step down into my life and when my thinking gets off track and when my life gets a little bit sideways and I don't really understand everything that's going on, I'm grateful that God, in his mercy still, will step into a life like mine and like yours, to a, into the life of a saint of God, and he'll say, hey, I want to help you. I want to reach for you. I want to challenge your status quo, get you back on track, and put you on the straight and narrow. I'm grateful that God challenges misplaced passions in our lives and redirects us in moments of confusion. Amen? Amen. That's the narrative of the book of Jonah. God's reaching for the prophet himself because God responds to Jonah's complaints and Jonah's appeal for death, for himself and for Nineveh. He responds with the question. The Lord said, Doest thou well to be angry? Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about this? We all understand the answer to that question is absolutely no. But God, and you know, He's trying to come around the back door, as it were, and kind of plant the idea in Jonah's head through a question. Jonah, is this really the way you should be acting? Like any loving parent does sometimes? You know, it, I, I, do you think it's right to not share your toys? You know, rather than just. Uh, kick him in the seat of the pants and say, share. I am uh, prone <laughs> to sometimes not do it properly and not always frame it properly in a question. But, you know, this is how God's working in, in Jonah's life. And, and Jonah, he completely ignores the question and carries on throwing his fit. Jonah leaves Nineveh in his frustration, in his anger, he sits at the east side of the city. He makes the booth. He sits under it in the shade so that he might see if God will, in fact, rain down fire and brimstone at the end of the 40 days. Obviously, Jonah has some major heart issues. The prophet's got problems. You know what I'm saying? What man or woman of God in their right mind would be this angry over the fact that God was saving people, reaching people? Makes no sense. Jonah is supposed to be a prophet of God, but, it's, but he seems to have forgotten the value of, why, uh, uh, of what God has called him to reach in the first place. The value of a soul. The value of people that are living in darkness. Obviously, he has missed the heartbeat of God in this moment. The God that he claims to serve. He seems to be neglecting the fact that God desires to pull people out of the world and out of their sin and bring them into his kingdom, out of unrighteousness and and into righteousness, out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what God desires to do. But Jonah missed it. And so here we have Jonah, the prophet, sitting outside the city, waiting and wishing that God still sends judgment on Nineveh. Jonah preached a message of judgment yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown and usually when preachers preach fire and brimstone it is to compel people to escape it not to hopefully see people fall into it but but that is what's happening here in the book of Jonah in chapter 4 i mean wouldn't it have just been easier like chapter 3 would have been way better let's just wrap up the story seems like he's a great guy did a great job but but no Chapter 4. There's a reason it's there. It's because it wasn't only the people of Nineveh that needed changing. Jonah needed changing too. The prophet needed an oil change under the hood, you know. He needed some tinkering by the master and the maker. Several years ago, I preached a message to our church. Maybe you recall, when the storm is your fault. And I preached about Jonah. How that when he ran from God, again, the fish... The great fish swallowed him up. The Bible says specifically that God prepared a great fish in Jonah chapter 117. And, and the word in the Hebrew for prepared is the word manah. And it puts you in mind of another Hebrew word that we're familiar with. It's the word manna. Everyone say manna. It's from the same family of words. And so God prepared the great fish. He, he, he sent this great fish. He manned provided this great fish, kind of like he, he, he caused manna to fall from heaven for provision in the book of Exodus. And I love this, this revelation. I love understanding that, that this was like manna from heaven because, because it lets me know that even when I, like Jonah, make a mess of my life or when I fall into a season of difficulty that is my fault, Jonah walked himself into his own storm. Even in times when it's my problem and my fault, God doesn't forget me. God has not forgotten me. He does not forsake me. And he can still provide for me to bring me out of the mess that I made, the mess that is my fault. God can still reach even when it's me that's caused a storm. Aren't you grateful for that today? Aren't you thankful that we serve a God like that, a God that still reaches in his mercy to a saint of God? we're not perfect. We are prone uh, to to mistakes and to problems and to bad choices. But it's like what Paul said, if we believe not, 2 Timothy 2.13, yet he abideth faithful. Even when we are faithless, God said, I'm going to be faithful to you, even in your moments of mistakes and problems and setbacks, for he cannot deny himself. It's in his nature. It's mercy. It's grace. it's, It's what he does. God will send manna, mana. God will send a great fish, if need be, into the midst of the mess that you made. The addiction might be your fault. The struggle you're in may have its uh, genesis with your decisions. But here's a lifeline for you anyway. That's the nature of God. He, here's, here's, here's a way of escape so that you can get out of your mess. That's what Jonah's experience was. God prepared the fish. But what I find interesting is that that Hebrew word, manah, prepared in the English translation, it's found three other times in the book of Jonah, four times total, once in Jonah chapter one for the fish. But then the next three, they just so happen to occur in the next three successive verses in Jonah four. Verse six, the Lord God prepared, he Manned he, he provided a gourd and he made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. And so Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But then verse seven, God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day and it smote the gourd so that the leafy plant withered which kind of strikes me as slightly confusing because the thing that God sent yesterday is now dying at the hands of what God sent today. But it doesn't stop there to, you know, you might say to add insult to injury. Verse 8, and it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah and he fainted and he wished in himself to die and he said, God, it's better for me to die than to live. And when you first read these three verses and you grasp what's happening, you know, you wonder if God's like flip-flopping. You know, did, did did you make a mistake when you sent the gourd? Because you killed it the next day, God. I can see when I read through the story of Jonah, it's easy to see God in the fish, right? It's easy to see how that's manna from heaven. I mean, it saved Jonah's life. I can see God in the fish. I can see God in the gourd. I mean, Jonah is, is you know, again, he's having issues. He, he's, he's throwing a temper tantrum. He's upset that people aren't going to die from fire and brimstone. There's something wrong. But, but I can even see God in his mercy in the gourd. He provided some shade for the prophet. But I struggle to see God in the worm. And I struggle to see God in the wind, because these do not feel like manna. These do not feel like provision from God. These feel like setbacks. These feel like inconveniences. These feel like frustrations epitomized. That's what they feel like. But just like God mannaed, prepared, sent the fish and the gourd, the principle, the word, the concept is the same. God sent and prepared the worm and the wind. Because God was trying to do something in his prophet. God was reaching for Jonah. All of these things sent for a specific purpose, trying to get Jonah's attention. God was trying to get Jonah to face his issues. He didn't come right out and tell Jonah he was prejudiced. He was a little more subtle than that, right? He goes around kind of in the back door. He frames it in the form of a question, but he gets the point across nonetheless. Like Nathan with... With David the king, Nathan the prophet, after David has committed adultery with Bathsheba, after David has killed his, her husband Uriah, Nathan the prophet has to come around and, and, and he knows that if he just comes right out and says, David, you're an adulterer and a murderer, you know, that might throw David off and he might kill the prophet, right? He has the authority to do so. So Nathan, he's a little bit more sly and, and, and subtle about it. He brings forward a parable and he says, David, there's, there's this, this guy and he has all kinds of livestock, you know, a bunch of sheep, lots of money. But he sees this guy that has this prized possession, little ewe lamb. And it's, it's, it's all that he has. But the rich guy takes this one ewe lamb from this poor guy. And David, being a shepherd at heart, he, he's irate. And he says, you know, we got to do something. This is, this is unjust. We have to take care of this rich man and get the ewe lamb back to the poor man. And, and that's when Nathan drops the bomb, right? You are the man. And so in like fashion, I, I would say God is trying to you know, paint this picture for Jonah with, with the prophet not even really realizing what, what God is up to. And so he provides the gourd, and then he sends the worm, and then he sends the wind, and Jonah is even in a worse state than what he started, and he's wanting death. He's wanting, he's wanting to, to, to leave this life. And then God said to Jonah, are you right to be angry about the gourd? Again, this isn't the first time that God asked a question to Jonah, right? First time was verse four. And there he was asking if, you know, Jonah, are you right to be upset that I'm not going to destroy the Ninevites? And Jonah was prompt to ignore the question and to storm off anyway. But here God is asking a lesser question, right? He's saying, Jonah... Is it right for you to be upset about the gourd? And Jonah now is willing to answer this question. He says, of course it's okay for me to be upset about the gourd. I'm taking this to my grave, God. I'll never get over you killing my shade. I'm going to be mad about this forever. And then God turns it. And the Lord said, you have had pity on this gourd, you didn't work for it. You didn't labor for it. You didn't make it grow. It came up one night, died the next. But should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein there are more than 120,000 people, and they can't discern between their right hand and their left hand. There is such spiritual darkness, pervasive spiritual darkness there. They can't even discern in front of their face. And the reason that God did all of this The reason there's a Jonah chapter 4, in my view, the reason that God not only sent the fish, but he sent the gourd and then the worm and then the wind was to reveal to Jonah the things that really bothered him, the things that got under his skin, right? The things that, that caused his plans to not go the way he felt they should. All these things were to show Jonah that he was more concerned with temporary comforts of life than he was for people who were perishing. Jonah had an upside-down value system. He he was mixed up and he was backwards, not moved at all at the prospect of people being lost in their sin, caring more for the things of his own temporary comforts than for the things that are eternal. This is the state of the man of God. And I think that's why God included Jonah chapter 4 in the Bible, inspiring Jonah to add this little you know, this this last chapter to his life story. Jonah forgot why he was a man of God. Jonah forgot why he served God. It wasn't to be popular. It wasn't to be famous. It it wasn't, you know, to keep up with your contemporary fellow prophets and, you know, how how many prophecies came true for you? Uh, you Well, That's not why he was in this. It wasn't to have all the conveniences of life. It certainly wasn't for riches. It was to obey the will and the word of God and ultimately to help the people. It was all about the people. It was to preach repentance and it was to preach God's righteousness to, to a world that was in darkness. And, and you know, I, I feel today to just say to all of us that if we aren't careful, we can become a lot like Jonah. We can get so worked up and so focused on trivial, temporary, insignificant matters of life, and be completely unmoved by what moves the heart of Jesus. And so today the question is, is what is your gourd? Can I frame it that way? What is your gourd? For Jonah, his gourd was a gourd. <laughs> but, but for us, that struck me way more funny than it should have but for, for us, our gourd might come in other shapes and sizes. What is your gourd? What what things bother you when they don't go according to plan? You know, um, all kinds of things, they get under the skin of 21st century North American citizens, right? I, I, uh, I've owned two houses in my life, and uh, this may have happened when I was living at home still with my parents, but in both houses that I've owned, our bedroom was in the upstairs far back corner of the house. And uh, I got to tell you, the Wi-Fi signal doesn't reach there very good. This is a major problem, people. Can I tell you how inconvenient it is to swipe my finger and turn off my Wi-Fi and waste my own data? This is, this is, this is bad, Okay. Does this resonate with anybody else? Okay. You ever ever had your car break down on you? Maybe this will resonate with more people. Uh, The only time that I had a car break down on me, when I was driving, I was driving my father's van, we were going to pick up some students, me and my family for, for a district event and we were on our way to Sussex, we pull off the exit and we're about a kilometer off the main highway and steam starts billowing from the engine and, uh, and we can smell coolant. You know, you know the drill. We pull over. And, uh, you know, considering what just happened, it could not have gone any more smooth. We literally broke down across the street from a convenience store. The lady knew of a mechanic that was just up the road who took the time to drive to the broken down van, diagnose the problem, go into Sussex. It's about an hour each way. And then come back with the part, fix it in the parking lot, and away we go. I mean, can you get any better than that? We didn't even have caa but the hand of god was on us but it was still really inconvenient okay it just makes you want to sigh maybe you're working on a project on your computer you forget to hit save periodically and then you get the spinning wheel of death and you lose your work from the past hour has that ever happened to anybody I mean, this is you, Sunday. You ever had a project on the go, a midterm paper, and then God sees fit to delete the past hour of your work, and when you try to write it again, it's never as good the second time. Help us, Holy Ghost. Rainy days, bad hair days, you spill coffee on your shirt. Never happens at the end of the day. It always happens in the morning. Yesterday, I was driving through Tim Hortons and they were taking cash only in the drive-thru. I don't carry cash, people. This is a problem. Yeah, it's happened to you too, I can tell. You wake up in the morning, you've got your outfit picked out in your mind, you go to the closet, you realize your favorite shirt is in the laundry, it's smelly, it's wrinkled. Your, not just your day is ruined, your whole week is ruined. <laughs> you know I'm Right maybe you're watching something and you're all cozy under a blanket and you realize in that moment, the remote is across the room. And you have a choice. Do I, do I leave my comfort to turn down the screaming preacher? Just just shouting out to all those watching today online. Or do I stay put and, and just not change the channel, not turn it down? You know, these, these are big problems, Right? not really. And they're perhaps funny. And and, and as I was thinking about this story and thinking about the time that we're living in, I I couldn't help but relate it to the very inconvenient season that we are in as, as a human race. It is rather inconvenient to have to go online and sign up for services for every service I want to attend and not only, and not be able to attend more than one or two a week. That's really inconvenient. It's really inconvenient to sit in overflow rooms and not be in the main sanctuary. And we commend you for doing that today if you're in our overflow building. But that's inconvenient. It's inconvenient to limit the supply of oxygen to my brain by breathing through a cloth mask over my face. That's inconvenient. It's not convenient to feel the whiplash of face changes from one color to the next as our our government officials see fit to do. COVID-19 has been anything but convenient for the people of God and certainly in nations like ours. We're blessed here in New Brunswick, but it's been difficult. It's been inconvenient. But not every inconvenience that God allows into our lives is there just to set us back or to frustrate us. Sometimes God will will use circumstances to speak. I would say most times, if we'll listen, we can hear his voice in it. See, God looked Jonah square in the face, and essentially he said, Jonah, you're getting upset about the wrong things. Right? COVID-19, this pandemic, it, it has... And rightfully so, in some cases, it has just caused anxiety and frustration and anger. And, but, but ultimately, this is not the greatest problem that we face. God looked at Jonah and he said, you're getting upset about the wrong things. At least you're getting vehemently upset about the wrong things. I took away the gourd for a purpose. I sent the worm in the wind for a purpose. It was to get you to take inventory of your heart and evaluate what was most important to you and you didn't even realize that you stopped caring about people along the way. We like Jonah can be sent into a fit because the convenient shade of our gourd gets removed but But maybe God allows inconveniences and frustrations to bring us face to face with our inner deficiencies. Because while we're upset about our gourds dying and the sun beating a little hotter and the vehement east wind uh, uh, going across our face and beating sand pellets across our face, people are still lost and dying without the Lord. Our gourd might die, but there are bigger problems, bigger fish to fry, if you will. Every day, people slip from this life into eternity without the saving message of the gospel, the cross of Calvary, the blood of Jesus Christ. People slipping into eternity without God should bother us. If you wanted to boil the message down, that, that's the message. People that are lost, that should register on our emotional radar. Ours is the generation that is so inundated with bad news. And you flip through Facebook for five minutes and you've already seen about 15 news stories about how, you know, whatever, I, I will not even, <laughs> I was going to go down the, the uh, road, I'm just going to leave it, how this and that's not working right and how, you know, your kids, uh, you know, your, your babies are going to, there's like 70 million ways that they could die in the first, you know, like, it's just crazy. There's so much bad news. It's the only thing that spreads, right? And we're inundated with tragedy after tragedy, bad news story after bad news story. It's all negative And, and we hardly have enough emotional resources left to allocate to real tragedies that happen and, and big issues that come our way. Am I right? We get our passions and we get our compassions all out of whack. And and because of this, because we're so inundated with bad news, it's just easier sometimes to turn it off and to internalize, to not care about anything. How can you care about everything that, that that is tragic that comes your way? It's impossible. So we just shut down, we internalize, and we turn off concern for others, and we start caring only about things that affect us, our personal lives. It's a condition that we have to fight in this, in this end-time generation. For Jonah, it even gets to the point where he is so bogged down and so consumed with a minor inconvenience that, that he's wishing his life away, all because his gourd died. He lost a personal comfort. He lost a little bit of shade and he didn't like it. And he said, God, I'm going to carry this to my grave. I'm really upset. Meanwhile, 120,000 were on the cusp of judgment. And he wasn't, he wasn't just indifferent. He was okay with it. He was, he was wanting it. He was wanting judgment. And so my question today, another question for you to ponder, what about the worm? Because, again, I understand God and the fish. I see God's mercy in the gourd. But what about the worm? Why does God set, send setbacks? Why would God inconvenience his prophet? Why does God allow inconveniences and frustrations in our lives? I don't think it's wrong to be upset about a gourd dying. I don't think it's wrong to get upset when things don't go according to plan. I don't think it's wrong to be upset that we can't all gather in our building the way we're used to. I don't think it's wrong to get upset about these sorts of things, but perhaps God allowed the inconvenience in Jonah's life to serve as a sort of benchmark. A benchmark to say, Jonah, hey, you care this much about something that is so small. In the grand scheme of eternity, Jonah, this really doesn't matter. And in light of the fact that you care this much about a gourd, can we just take some time and do some comparative analysis here, and, and let's let's weigh your concern about a gourd against your concern for one hundred and twenty thousand Ninevites over here. This is why there's a Jonah chapter four in your Bible. What about the worm? God sent the worm. An apparent setback and inconvenience to help Jonah see his values were backward. Lost people had ceased to phase Jonah, the lost and the destitute in his fear. They they ceased to matter, but in his mercy, God helped Jonah to realize it. I want to be moved by the things that move the heart of the master. I don't want to be like Jonah and get so off-put and distraught by really, ultimately, weighed against eternity, things that don't matter. I don't want to get so distraught when Tim Hortons takes cash only. I mean, it's probably not that big of a deal. When the car breaks down. I, I Even all of the chaos that we have to face in our current climate. I don't want to get so caught up in all of that and so mad about that but, but totally missed something that's more important. I want to be moved by the same things that move the heart of the master. Music, come join me. I'm almost finished. Matthew chapter 9. Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. I want to be moved by the same things that move the heart of the master. I want my heart to break for the same things that break the heart of Jesus. Jesus was moved for the multitudes because they fainted. They were scattered like a sheep having no shepherd. And then saith he to his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. I'm like you today. I really, I'm not sure everything that God is doing in the world today. Sometimes you wonder, God, are you really in this? Are you really in these setbacks, these inconveniences? Maybe God is stirring up some righteous indignation in us and not a thing wrong with that. But rather than getting upset about momentary measures and temporary inconveniences... Perhaps God is wanting us to channel and appropriate that concern towards eternal matters. The souls of men and women. Maybe that's what God is doing. I close today, not with Jonah's story, but, but one of his, I guess not a contemporary prophet, Elijah came slightly before Jonah. But, but we look And we see a parallel story in Elijah's story that seems to coincide with what Jonah experienced. Elijah was also a prophet. And you know the story in 1 Kings 18 how there was a contest on Mount Carmel. 850 prophets of Baal and of the grove against one man of God. Two altars, two sacrifices, but only one victor. The God that answers by fire, let him be God. And Elijah and Jehovah come out on top victorious and all the pagan prophets are killed. And and you turn the page to chapter 19 and Queen, Queen Jezebel of Israel doesn't like this very much. And she threatens Elijah's very life saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I make not thy life as the life of one of those prophets by tomorrow about this time. And so Elijah has a, a hit out for his life and it sends him into a tailspin and 1 Kings 19.4 tells a story. The Bible says, He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came and he sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die. Does this sound familiar to anybody? He's in the wilderness, sitting under the shade of a tree, begging God to take his life. He said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life for... I am not better than my father's. I see a similarity, a parallel in the two prophets. But I also see a parallel in God's response. Because in Jonah's despair, God seeks to realign the prophet's priorities back to people. Jonah, the gourd doesn't matter. Those Ninevites matter way more. And, And God, in the face of Elijah's despair, responds likewise by saying, What doest thou here, Elijah? Why are you in this pit of despair and depression and wallowing? Elijah says, well, I'm very jealous for the Lord of hosts. I'm I'm serving you, God. But I'm upset because the children of Israel, they've forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've slain your prophets with the sword. I'm a prophet. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Now this isn't true. verse eighteen tells us that there's seven thousand who haven't bowed down to Baal, but nevertheless, here is Elijah wallowing in despair. But the Lord said unto him, and like like God realigned Jonah's priorities, he tries to realign Elijah's priorities, and he says, "I want you to leave the wilderness, and when you leave, there's something I want you to do and and I find it interesting, you know. Not that there's anything wrong. These things are needful. But God did not tell Elijah to go and have a three-day prayer meeting. God didn't tell Elijah to go and fast for seven days. God didn't tell Elijah to go and find the choicest lamb or ram and sacrifice it. God didn't tell him any of that. But he said, Elijah, leave the wilderness and anoint Hazael, anoint Jehu, and anoint Elisha. If I could paraphrase today, God's response to Elijah's wallowing was, hey, Elijah, there's people out there that I want your life to touch. There are people out there that need your influence, and your life can find purpose once again when it is poured out into the lives of others. What pulled Elijah out of his wallowing and his despair was when he put his focus on investing in somebody else's life and off of his own problems and off of his own frustrations and off of his own inconveniences. God said, if you will pour it into somebody else, if you will go and anoint the next generation, then I will pull you out and you will stand strong once again. What pulls people out of their pit and their frustration, it's the same thing. You want to stop feeling that nagging sense of hopelessness? Go and find somebody that God is calling you to impact and impart into and invest in, teach and train, give into and pour into. Go and find your Elisha. Go and find some Ninevite out there that needs the hand of God in, in their life. Go and impact and invest somebody else. You will find healing and relief. When you saturate your life with mission, it's found in people. It's found in people. My challenge today, what I feel the Lord would say, this generation must once again be moved by people who are lost. We can become so inwardly focused and it doesn't even phase us. We can become just like Jonah, upset about a leaf dying and seemingly fine with the world being lost. God wants to flip that value system. By his word today, in this room today, in our overflow, where you're watching from online today, God wants to flip that value system. And maybe some of the things we're walking through have have served as a benchmark to help us to realize, you know what? It's really not as bad as we might feel, but there are others that are in a much worse state than we are. But we have the answer that they need. And we have the name that they need. And we serve the God that they need to be introduced to. We can make a difference in their lives if we will get our eyes off of our own problems and if we will go and get out of our wilderness and go and get a heart for people once again. I wanna be moved by a world that is lost. I wanna be moved once again by lost souls of men and women on their way to a devil's hell. But if the church intervenes, it can change and it can turn. We have the answer today. But we must be moved. Stand together with me this morning. Come on, just let the Lord move upon you right now by his word, by his spirit. Jesus, move us again. Help us not to be stubborn. Help us not to be unmoved in your presence. Help us not to be unmoved, so consumed by all the trivia of life. God, help us to be sensitive to your spirit's leading. God, help us to be moved. Help us to be moved. Help us to be moved with compassion. Oh, we need to respond more than just 10 seconds. I know that we have masks on. I would just encourage you to just lean in to what you feel in the atmosphere today. Lean in to what God is saying to his people today. I know maybe it was a little bit more of a heavy message but God is working if we'll just let him I know that God wants to realign and rearrange God has not forsaken us like he didn't forsake the prophet Jonah he's maybe introduced some difficulty but he's speaking to us right now he is reaching for us in this season hallelujah, 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 hallelujah oh lift your voice people of God In our overflow building, lift your voice, people of God. In your living room today, lift your voice, people of God.